Welcome back to another episode of Politics as Usual. I'm your host, Fred Curtis, and this week we have an incredibly special guest. Uh, her name is Kat Allen, and she hails from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Kat and I have the pleasure of working with one another at our day jobs, um, and I have learned just an immense amount of uh, information from her across a variety of topics. Um, she is a fierce leader, organizer, activist, community, you know, person, whatever you want to call it, any like positive platitude, um, she matches. And so uh, I really enjoyed our conversation out of all the podcast or interviews or just interactions I think I've had, media related that have been recorded really in the past four or five years. Um, This was by far the most enjoyable, um, primarily because I learned so much um, from our conversation and from talking to her. Um, And there's just a level of genuine sincerity, um, but also, uh, you know, intellect uh, in in her spirit and in what she offers. Um, And I think in such tumultuous times, we need more of that. There's a balance there um, between like love, compassion, um, you know, sort of a spirit of teaching, but then also being like very confident and fearless and, you know, not compromising on things that have no business being compromised on, if that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, um, I think you'll get an understanding of it from from our conversation. So um, if you like the show, please, please, please subscribe. And then even more than that, share it on your social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. Um, Text it to your friends who you think might be interested. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Relentless love. Um, I mentioned subscribe, but I'll say it again. Subscribe on Spotify uh, and Apple Podcasts. Um, We think we're putting out really good content, really good informative content. Um, But to do this more consistently, we need more supporters, to be honest. So check us out, www.relentless.love. And uh, yeah, enjoy our conversation with Kat. Politics as usual. Um, I haven't heard back from Rock Nation or Jay Z about um, using the song as the intro, by the way. So hopefully soon. But for now, we'll have to stick to the generic hip hop beat. Uh, I'm your host, Fred Curtis. And today, well, every week, we have a very special guest here. Um, but this week, a really, really special guest. Um, her name is Kat Allen. Uh, I, I don't think I can do an introduction that is worthy um, of your prowess. And so, you know, every time you meet someone or go on a job interview, you know, it's like, tell, tell me about yourself. Um, and so, Kat, why don't you tell us about yourself? Oh, man. I'm, like, really bad at talking about myself, though. Um, I'm here I'll, to gas I'll tell you, you Okay, thanks. I'll tell you all the vitals, right? So, uh, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. I am 35 whole years old. I have uh, a delightful dog who actually got out earlier, like right before I was supposed to come on. Like me and two other neighbors were like chasing her. So like I got super winded because quarantines, I don't exercise anymore. Like right before I came on here. So I was (laughs) terrified. I was going to come on and be like, what's up? Um, So there's that. And then I have a daughter. She's eight and wonderful, and part of the reason why I do a lot of the organizing work that I do, most of which is comprised uh, with the Memphis chapter of DSA. So, um, and that's it. I mean, I just try and do dope stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's a whole lot more there. Um, and you do do a quite, quite, a, quite a bit of dope stuff. Um, and for a little bit of background here for, for listeners, um, uh, Kat and I actually work at the same company right now. Um, I will not name it because I prefer not to give people free advertising. So, um, but mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty cool. They're in the tech sort of politics sphere. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the dope stuff you do, particularly, we were recording this on October 7th. So I don't know how many days until the election, but not too long. Um, what's taking up most of your time right now, besides that job that shall forever mm-hmm. remain nameless? Mm-hmm. Yeah, besides the job um, <laughs> that I was like, yeah, that I was doing also before I chase the dog, but I mean, it's just like, it's going from one thing to another, but I guess in terms of like, let's see, what am I doing? So we're what, 28 days out from uh, the most consequential election, arguably of our lifetimes. I don't even know if it's arguable at this point. Oh, I it's straightforward. It's, like, it's, it's inarguably the most consequential, right? Without um, so at the Memphis Mid-South DSA, I co-chair the electoral working group because of my experience in electoral politics, which I guess like if you want me to talk about myself, like that's really the world that I come from. Not like I come from an organizing background, but I have spent the vast majority of the last like 10 years or so in electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I co-chair the electoral working group and then I co-chair the communications working group as well. And right now those two things are intersecting. So most of my days when I'm not working and not being a parent, um, I am helping to get the word out and mobilize our membership to campaign for our three endorsed candidates. Um, so we endorsed fewer candidates in this cycle than we did last cycle for a couple of reasons. The first was that last cycle was a municipal cycle, so it was smaller races, it was easier to endorse a broader slate of candidates. Um, but because of the, the cycle this year where we're just endorsing state and federal candidates because we don't have any municipal races, Um, we had to endorse fewer candidates because there were, there was a lot more. I don't need to tell you this. You also come from the electoral (laughs) world. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into a house race than, you know, a city council race. So we've endorsed, uh, this year, Marquita Bradshaw, who is running for, yeah, who is running for U.S. Senate. Um, she is running for the seat that Lamar Alexander's uh, barely sentient corpse has kept warm for decades. Um, and she is running against Bill Haggerty, who, like, the only thing he has going for him is that, uh, like, apparently he was the ambassador to Japan. I'm not even sure that the people of Japan are aware of this, um, which is approximately <laughs> how much work he did while he was ambassador to Japan. <laughs> Uh, it's like a surprise to them in Tokyo. They're like, really? Um, and he's endorsed by uh, Trump, who is a literal fascist. So that's what he's got in his quarter. Marquita is a single uh, working, still working, still works a regular job while really? she is camping. Yes. Single working wow. black mother, environmental activist from South Memphis. Um who is running to represent real people. We're also endorsing Gabby Salinas, who is a uh, medical researcher at St. Jude, which is incredible because she was at one point a patient at St. Jude. Wow. Um, family immigrated here from Bolivia so that she could receive treatment. Mm-hmm. That's yep. big time. And then we're also um, endorsing Tori Harris, who is running against um, an anti-choice pro-voucher demagogue. Um, who has also kept his seat warm for 26 years and would be the first openly gay 
um, representative for the state of Tennessee. So that's what I spend my days doing is gassing those folks up. Good grief. That is a uh, lineup of people that for sure um, are not on the center right spectrum of the Democratic Party, which is dope and impressive and we need at the local, state and national level. Um, do you sleep? Right now I'm sleeping about four hours a night. That's not bad for, for October of an election year. No, I, but this is like, we're well, like 28 days out now. So maybe when we get to like 14, yeah, that yeah. four is going to go out the window and it's just going to be, you know, it's, it's a sprint at that point. Um, a lot of those candidates sound like people who would very clearly fit into anybody's definition of progressive per se. <laughs> um, while, while there is merit to that term, it is becoming one that is thrown out with particular just gloss, meaning you get progressive, you get a progressive, you get a progressive. Um, in your estimation, what, what, what does the term progressive, you know, mean as we enter, you know, a pivotal election? Um, and would you consider yourself a progressive? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that's really important to me as a socialist um, which like, I, I suppose if people want to call me a progressive, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be an inaccurate term yeah. to use, but like, if we want to be very specific and I think, I think we need to be about things, especially because to your point, progressivism is something that has been kind of, um, broadened and is, yeah. and is being co-opted by more moderate and centrist wings because it's sexy. Right. Um, but like, let's be very clear. I'm a socialist. Yeah. Okay. And uh so I, I think like when when we talk about progressivism <laughs> i don't want us to get too caught up in like the academic and historical context behind that word which is typically yeah. where my my brain first goes but also as somebody who uh is a socialist and organizes with other socialists and and organizes new socialists specifically one of the things that i've learned is that theory will will get in the way of real mm. genuine engagement. Yeah. Um, and theory and theory and praxis are very are totally different things and they're often conflated. So I could talk about the theory behind progressivism, but I think what progressivism actually looks like um, is straying away from the status quo in favor of things that are equitable and don't speak to equity, not equality, because mm. you and I have had this conversation before, but they're yeah. fundamentally different, different yeah. things. Um, things that are like fearlessly innovative, like the Green New Deal, I think is probably um, one of the more, when I think about actual progressivism, I think about the Green New Deal. I don't necessarily think that something like Medicare for all is progressive because for me, it's right. Uh, uh, it, <laughs> That's so basic. Correct. There's right? nothing progressive about everyone having health care. There is nothing progressive about the idea that people shouldn't die yeah. because they can't afford to go to the doctor. Absolutely. Like that's common sense. That's human decency. But when we think about the Green New Deal, we're talking about addressing age old issues with an entirely new lens um, on, on what jobs look like going forward in this new economy about what um, job training and education look like going forward about how we can move toward clean energy and and uh. address the climate crisis for what it is it's like it's no longer just climate change it's an actual like five alarm literal fire 
quite literally. Crisis. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and the, like, the only thing that's going to get us there is progressive ideas like the Green New Deal. Um, because it's, it's putting an entirely new way of thinking on a problem that we've known about for decades and nobody mm -hmm. has been able to or very interested in solving. That's probably a really obtuse way to answer your question. Yeah, no, 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 definitely not. I mean, you started this by saying you were worried about sounding smart and it sounds like you just are smart, um, which, is, uh, <laughs> which, which is dope and why we uh, love that you agreed to come on. There's a lot I want to extrapolate from that, but we'll, we'll try to um, circle back and hopefully have some time. Um, but speaking of um, progressive, and you know, I know you uh, you know, mentioned being more so a, a socialist, which I just love that you accept that and affirm it and haven't let um, far right people just sort of co-op and steal the term um, and redefine it as something else. But you mentioned Memphis. Um, uh, you love Memphis. Am I, am I correct in that? I assumption? do. Yeah. What makes I it do. such a unique treasure to you? Um, oh man, I don't want to like, I also see, I'm so sorry, one second, my dog <laughs> is trying to get inside of the hamster cage. Oh, okay. Uh, well, this is a real, this is a real tragedy waiting to happen. Hang on one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's take a break. No, no, you're <laughs> good. I mean, that's one of the, it's one of the hallmarks of our show. We talk to real people, so. Uh. <laughs> I could literally like hear her like scratching at the, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> uh, don't be um, all right. I was about to tell you what I loved about Memphis and why. Yeah. <sighs> Too much. Huh? It's like, I don't want to get like emotional, but all like, right, when, emotional. I, I have, an, and I don't know, it's like a chicken or the egg situation, right? Like, I don't know if I root for underdogs and I also love Memphis or if I love Memphis because I, I I'm not sure. Yeah. But Memphis to me is a city with so much promise um, and so much potential. And in like, in spite of ourselves, we're like amazing mm. um, because we certainly like have our own set of issues. But when you think about like the history of our city and our food culture and like music and certainly our, our culture and our history of, um, of organizing, um, you know, it's not, it has never been lost on me or never insignificant to me that King chose the sanitation strike yeah. Uh, in Memphis in 68, you know, like that of, and not that he didn't get involved with a lot of things, like he was deeply involved in, in the housing rights movement in Chicago and things like that as well. But, but like Memphis, he specifically came to Memphis and specifically came to be in solidarity with um, the sanitation workers. And so I think, um, you know, standing in some of those very same places uh, where he stood and standing on uh, Beale Street, you know, where Ida B. Wells talked about a lot of the, like, bravely spoke about a lot of the horrific things that were happening in the city at the time with, like, yeah. lynchings and things like that. Like, I, I don't think you can be an organizer who is from Memphis and not feel unbelievably privileged um, to organize where you do when you think about 
you know, who, who comes from here and who, who chose to, to come here for various reasons. So that's, that's one of the reasons I love Memphis. The other reason that I love Memphis so much is like culturally, like we're your cousin that you hope comes to the family function because you know that like something nuts is going to happen, <laughs> but you're also really afraid of what happens if we show up. Yeah. Like it's going to be good. And we're like, we're going to have a bottle of something, but like, you're also kind of afraid because there have been times where we have maybe gone a little too far. Like that's who we are as a city. Like we're, we're almost, almost always going to have it almost completely together, but, but not quite, but we're endearing um, regardless. I don't know. I just. No, no. I mean, those are the absolute like best places, I think. I don't know. I I have a, uh, an affinity for, for places that have like that same level of historical significance, especially to organizing, Um, but maybe don't get sort of that same um, attention, which is, you know, I, I find particularly interesting because of, like, like you mentioned, the, the, the very paramount things that have happened relating to, you know, liberation for non-white men in this country uh, and Memphis and whatnot. Um, and I think in some ways it, it speaks to sort of this larger thing. Um, and, you know, I think people often explicitly forget or ignorant of like the promise that Memphis and, you know, the rest of the Delta, I think, once meant to, uh, to Black people. So I think rather than asking like, based especially off your time there, the work that you're doing that you talked about, rather than asking if slash when that essence would be recaptured. I guess I'm curious in your mind, like what do you think needs to happen both politically and, you know, within organizing to make the Delta like a promising place again for progressive women, black and brown people, LGBTQIA, um, et cetera? Yeah. Well, let me preface all of this by saying that what's definitely not my place is to tell um, black organizations or, or black leadership, what, what needs to happen. Right. But what I, what I will speak from is from my experience learning from and working alongside and like very situational experience. So the first thing that needs to happen is we need to win these races Amen. at the, at the state and federal level. Right. Because it's hard for us to work toward progressive policies when we're having to claw back basic human rights one by one. And in Tennessee, that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, earlier this year, there was a law passed that, that of course, you know, is going to be, everyone's like, oh, the ACLU will take it up and it'll go to the Supreme Court, which was fine, you know, three <laughs> months ago, six months ago. Now it ain't fine. Exactly. Um, but it effectively made abortion illegal in the state of Tennessee. So it is, it is now effectively illegal to procure an abortion in the state of Tennessee anywhere wow. for any reason. Wow. Um, the other thing that happened this year was that our, our house passed, our governor signed into law a bill that makes just about every type of protest a felony offense on the first arrest. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, like. So does the First Amendment exist in Tennessee? No. No, it doesn't. Not unless you're talking about like a, the Judeo-Christian God. Uh, yeah. 
And like, so, so first things first, like we have to like claw back some of these basic rights, which is yeah. kind of being in the South, like that's what we find ourselves organizing around a lot yeah. of the time, which can be really frustrating um, to always feel like you've, you've got to get to, you know, the surface mm -hmm. um, before you can see higher heights as it were. But, but that is step one, is breaking the supermajority in, uh, in our state house. And then I would say, you know, more than that, there is, outside of electoral work, um, we have in the Mid-South and, and Memphis especially, we have this like really toxic combination of like plantation economics and a nonprofit industrial complex happening. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what I mean when I say plantation economics is we basically have a, a handful of uh, business types um, who are CEOs of these corporations who are mostly logistics corporations. So Memphis is one of the major logistics hubs in the entire world. Mm. Um, FedEx is headquartered here. Um, so there's that, right? Yeah, <laughs> that speaks so to a lot of logistics there. Exactly. Um, so we're a massive logistics hub. And so what does that mean? We have a lot of warehouses. So we have a lot of jobs that are, you know, manual, manual labor. I don't want mm. to use the word unskilled labor because I don't believe that any labor is unskilled. Amen. Um, but it, manual labor jobs that don't pay a living wage, um, that don't have benefits. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's almost like we're right back where we were, where people would go and, and shop at the company store, you know, like your, yeah. your check was already spent, you know what I mean? So you were always indebted to your own company. Um, and, and so that's kind of like, we have these, you know, sort of modern titans of industry um, and who are job creators of low wage jobs that are, um, that are not like sustainable for people. And so you have, you have plantation economics. So as long as people are, are focused on where their next meal is coming from and how they keep the lights on, mm. they're never going to feel like they've got time to organize. Yeah. Um, and as long as we live in a right to work state where you can be fired for trying to organize a union, you know, that it's going to be difficult for them to gain any type of power in the workplace, right? So you've got that going on. But then you also have this like nonprofit industrial complex where in the Mid-South alone, we have um, close to 1900 separate nonprofits in the Mid-South area. <laughs> right. So like, why haven't we solved homelessness? Why haven't we saw, why is there, you know, why do a third of all children in Shelby County go hungry every day? Yeah. Explain it to me. Um, but the entire industry is, is built on continuing to do this good work that never seems to end. Yeah. So we have, we have an economic system that keeps people in poverty because it keeps them disengaged from organizing. Um, and then we have a, a, a complex that will forever feel the need to keep itself busy with helping those same people using corporate donations and funds from those same companies. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a community foundation that holds half a billion dollars in assets currently. Community foundation and half a billion dollars in assets. That's correct. Here in Memphis. How do those go? Half to a billion dollars in assets. How do those go together? 
Well, I mean, I, mm-hmm. well, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh. mm-hmm. yeah. We know how they go together. So, I mean, why are we giving out ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollar grants? Like, why don't we just house unhoused people? That would make too much sense. And you know, I think and I, I've gotten like way off of our original subject. No, but. no. There's no going off original subjects um, on this on this show. Uh, and I mean, I'm learning so much from this conversation. There's so much I want to extrapolate from. I, I think the first thing is, you know, a lot of what I hear you talking about is like people fail to always recognize that like the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And it's always, you know, Dr. King, you know, died in Memphis and we got this lovely motel that's been turned into a museum. And it's like, can we talk about why he was there um, and why he felt the need to go back there? Um, one, because the first peaceful protest that happened there did not go well, so on and so forth. He wanted to go back so that he could do a nonviolent protest. And then two is because two sanitation workers died because they couldn't get sheltered during a heavy rainstorm. Anyway, you know all this. I'm sort of framing it for the listeners who might not. Um, it, it, what is that? Almost 50 years later, more than 50, 52 years later. Um, 52. We're seemingly, not seemingly, we are still fighting uh, the, the same battles which is incredibly frustrating. Um, the other thing you mentioned is just like the, the GOP conservative people's just relentlessness in trying to control women's bodies. Um, and, and for whatever reason, it just seems like a hill that they're willing to die on. And some you know, women within the conservative movement as well. Um, I just wanna shift focus a little bit here. Um, and you know, I, I think it's okay for me to say being a woman brings its own challenges, right? There are just things that you all go through and experience that I as a man will, will never understand. There's a level of privilege that I have um, that, that, you know, being a woman just don't, you all don't have. Um, being a progressive woman, I would assume brings more. Uh, being a progressive woman mm-hmm. in the South can feel draining at times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you cope? And how do you cope, one, and two, what's your advice to other women across the Sun Belt, you know, working on the front lines? Uh, stop watching the news and delete all of your dating apps. Facts. Okay. <laughs> no hey. matches? No, no matches on Tinder uh, in Memphis? Um, I mean, <laughs> so I was just having this conversation with somebody else today. Uh, it's, uh, it's difficult. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult. I'll, I'll say that much. Um, what, what is my, how do I cope? Okay. Well, I cope by doing whatever I have to do to maintain a modicum of optimism Hmm. that I'm working for something. Yeah. Um, and to try and find contentment in small wins. Hmm. So, Will I see um, universal health care in my lifetime? Probably not. Probably not. Let's be, yeah. let's be real. Um, will, we, will we get to zero emissions as a country in my lifetime? Probably not. Yeah. No. Um, and so I have to put that kind of stuff out of my mind and go, but what can, I, what can I do today to help lay that groundwork and like reorient? I think the last couple of years, I've really had to reorient my thinking yeah. um, in terms of what success looks like for me as an organizer in that regard. Yeah. Um, so perspective helps me cope a lot. Um, my, like my friends help me yeah. cope a great deal. Um, and I think in 
in the the world of like the left um there's this interesting culture around fear Mm. and how you know we are not afraid of anyone or anything um and that's a really and it's just like whatever whatever's coming next no matter how bad it gets like we're ready for it um and that can be true and it can also be simultaneously true that it's terrifying amen yeah. you know like i do the work that i do okay now i am really getting emotional i do the work that i do and it still scares me at night mm. when i go to sleep you know like i still um knowing all the privilege that i have as uh, a white collar white woman um, I've still been, I've still been illegally surveilled by the Memphis police department. Uh-huh. Like they've still posted up outside of my house with my daughter inside. And yeah. like, I think about that stuff when I, when I go to bed at night. So, uh, being armed is one of, one of the ways in which I cope. I feel you. And, and relying on, relying on my friends to kind of provide, uh, comedic relief and perspective, um, and I, I guess like my advice to other women is don't, don't, if you haven't started, don't ever be sorry. And mm. if you are ever sorry or find yourself doubting who you are, then stop. Mm. Then just stop. Because one of the things we were laughing about deleting dating apps earlier, one of the things that really started to for a while, like really get me down was, uh, I, I kept hearing from people like, you just, you just seem really busy. Like you seem too busy for a relationship or you seem like you seem really, yeah, totally. Um, you know, like, when are you going to have time to date? I'm like, when I'm free, like, do you need like a minimum time, you know, time one or the other? Yeah. Right. I'm like, (laughs) I'm here, aren't I? Um, but one of the other things that I heard a lot was that like, you're just like, you're super smart, but you're just like very intense. Okay. Like I was supposed to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I'll, I'm, let me just dial it back a little bit. Um, and I know that I'm not alone because I've talked to other women about it. And they're like, oh my God, I get that all the time too. And I'm like, well, then it like, it is what it is. Um, so I think that's, that would probably be my advice to other women is either don't ever start being sorry for who you are or stop being sorry for who you are. Um, because this type of like bold, intense fearlessness and insistence on liberation for all of us is the only thing that's going to work. Asking for it nicely. Was it Frederick Douglass that uh, says power concedes nothing without a demand? Yeah. What a time. You know, I, I, what I'm finding, I think, especially the past five or six months is that, you know, all these people who we've learned about or discovered, read, whatever else, who have been leaders in the past, <clears throat> their words aren't just applicable today. They are still very much, it's like a blueprint to organizing. It's a blueprint to trying to move society forward, whether it's Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, <clears throat> Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, whoever. Um, we talk about a lot you know, over, especially over this past summer, what it means to be, you know, an ally to black or brown people. Uh, 
particularly, you know, in your experience and a lot of the work you're doing now, I, I tend to think the same thing applies to men being allies to women. Um, how can men show up to uh, be allies to women in the workforce, you know, in private, like whatever it might be? Mm. Oh, man. Don't be assholes. I'll yeah, let's start there. Let's start there. Uh, don't be a dick. Let's don't be asshole. Don't be a dick. Don't rape. <laughs> don't hit. Yeah, me. right, right, right. Like that's all the the real basic stuff, right? Check, yeah. check, check. Like if you're having trouble getting through that checklist, then let's like, start there, bro. <laughs> right. Let's let's see if we can knock some of that out first. Because uh, if you're having trouble with that checklist, like you're not going to like the rest of what I have for you. <laughs> it's not, put down the menu, leave the restaurant. Mm. <laughs> Sir, this is a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> not Burger King. It's not your way. Get the hell out That's of right. here. All right. That's right. Um, feminism is not a Burger King. Hey, ooh, you should trademark that. Oh, maybe. I like maybe. it. Slap it on a light blue t-shirt. Yes. Oh, man. Oh, there I'm we go. Capitalism, monetizing. <laughs> but we have to listen. We have to survive in the society that we have in the meantime. Yeah, <laughs> I strike this balance. Anyway, <laughs> monetize the movement, but only so much. <laughs> um, how can men be be allies to women? Well, I think I would I think I would start by answering that question. I would start by by clarifying. So when we were talking earlier this summer, um, and, you know, for a lot of people in years past and a lot of people still right now in this very moment talking about how we can, we can show up better and be better accomplices and co-conspirators with black and brown people. I would say that the same framing of that question is true for women. Yeah, so good. I've known a lot of male allies in my life and they have really sucked as people. What I'm looking for are male accomplices. So these are people who are who are actively engaged in dismantling patriarchy and not just being like, yeah, girl, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, because that's an ally, somebody who's like, in in my experience, other people's experience, you know, not a monolith, but like when I think of ally, I think of somebody who's like, you can do it totally with you in spirit. And, and an accomplice is like, all right, well, when are we pulling up? Yeah. Like, that's the difference. I think the real difference is just how strong your pull-up game is. I think yeah. we've solved it. You're actually contributing something, sacrificing think, yeah. something, showing up. Yeah. Right. I think, yes, I could go on this, like, 10 or 15 minute, like, oh, and men can do this and men can do this. But, like, I think I'm just going to, it's 2020 and we don't really have time for these. We don't have time for, like, a lot of these, like, super, like, heady, high-level conversations. So mm. let's boil it down to this, Fred. How strong is your pull-up game for women in 2020? Yeah. Will you roll up to somebody's house for a woman or not? Yeah. No. And that applies that. to like people in your people in your community and like senators. Like, are you gonna pull up to their house and demand or an AG's house and demand that they arrest the officers mm. who murdered Breonna Taylor? Mm. Like that's the kind of pull-up game 
that I, <laughs> that I'm thinking about this year. So yeah. if men want to be good allies to women, yeah, they can, they can be first past the post when it comes to, when it comes to saying things like, you know, I appreciate that you're considering me for this or that you've asked me to take on this project, but is there literally no woman in this organization who's just as qualified, if mm. not more so, yeah. you know, like make it uncomfortable for people to give you any credit for being a man Yeah. ever. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, that makes tons of sense. And, um, um, I mean, I know a lot of people can identify with that, but I think that's something even I can <clears throat> intentionally think about and, and implement in a variety of spaces, both sort of a day job space, but also, this is someone who, you know, does consulting and whatnot. There are things that opportunities, I think, that come my way, um, but there are plenty of women I know who, who are way more suited um, and can do a much better job, to be totally honest. Um, so that's an endearing challenge, I think. Um, and, and just to, you know, add on to that, particularly for any men listeners we have, there's, you're not exalting anybody to do anything that women haven't done for centuries for men. Um, you know, the folks who have shown up primarily for, men, particularly black men, um, have been women, uh, historically. This is not an opinion. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is facts. I mean, even the contributions of women have been downplayed for history. I particularly loathe the, the uh, sort of erasure or minimization of the contributions that black women had to the civil rights movement. Totally different conversation. Um, <clears throat> so I appreciate sort of the candor and the, and the exultation there. Um, shifting a little bit to our last question back to the electoral politics space, because what would politics as usual be without that? Um, I've long believed for months now that Mike Epps is going to win the Senate race in Mississippi. (laughs) Nobody listens to me. um, And it's fine. They don't, they don't have to. Um, The good thing, you know, this is why I love a little bit of rant. This is why I love Twitter because there are receipts um, and you can pull them up. And it's like some, someone within the Democratic Party is going to listen to me one day and we're going to win races and stay in office and keep super majorities. Anyway, different conversation. Um, but I've long believed he's going to win in Mississippi. Uh, and I've got a variety of reasons to sort of think that, but this isn't the space to share those. Um, but based off your experience, you know, both electorally, but then also a lot of the organizing you're doing. Um, for those that don't know, Memphis sits right on the Mississippi River, so it is pretty close to the to the state. So you, you, you've got some chops and know what you're talking about here. Um, you think FC has a shot in Mississippi? <laughs> you're not as bullish as I am, huh? Uh, okay. All right. Here it is. Um, and yes, for context, for people who are listening, I actually read an article earlier today that described Memphis, Tennessee as a suburb of DeSoto County, which I took incredible offense to. What? Listen, I'm going to write the editor as soon as I get off of uh, the Zoom with you. And like, we are going to have some words. Be it known forever and ever, amen, that Memphis, Tennessee is nobody's suburb. Yes. (laughs) Period. Now, to answer your question, I think Mike Espy can win. I think he should win. I think like maybe like 10 days ago, he was within like five percentage points of Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is a sentient dry chicken tender of a person and like a horrible, like let's not even make light of it. She's an awful fascist racist woman. That's what she is. Period. Um, I think he was within like five percentage points. And then as of like 
24 hours ago, like within like one percentage point. Of course, it depends on whose polls you look at. Very so true. if you believe if you believe the polling. He's within a margin of victory. He is within a margin of victory, but he is still behind. Yeah. And if you believe the polling, then she will win. Yeah. But I think more importantly, instead of talking about whether or not we think he's going to win, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt he's the most qualified. Mm. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt he is the right person to lead. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about why we're even having this conversation, yeah, we can't talk about this race without talking about how the DSCC completely left Mike Espy and the state of Mississippi out to dry. Yep. We have to talk about how the DSCC has put at this point nearly 50 times the amount of money into Amy McGrath's race against Mitch McConnell. And Amy McGrath is not even the person who should be running no against Mitch McConnell. Right? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Charles Booker, Charles Booker should uh, listen. He would beat Mitch. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, handily. They've got a Democratic governor. So this isn't a pipe dream we're talking about. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's absolutely not. So when, if we want to talk about electoral politics in 2020, let's start naming names. Let's start calling out the people and the organizations whose salary is the same, whether they win or lose. We have to continue what we, and when I say we, I mean leftists, progressives, a united front of everyone who is not terrible. Yeah have to continue the work that, that we started in 16 and exploded in 18 and start calling these neoliberal centrist corporatists to the carpet and saying, you are literally paid to lose. Uh, Stop it. Uh, People are dying. Wow. So I'm here to tell you that if Mike Espy loses his race, the DNC and the DSCC are the reason that it happened. And you can quote me. In fact, you will, because this is being recorded. We'll play it on a loop over and over and over again. He's the right candidate at the right time. Facts. We've had people on the ground doing voter registration work, re-registering over 100,000 voters who hadn't voted since 2008. And we know who they voted for in 2008. We also know that Mississippi as a state is a state that's 40% black. Amen, yes. It also has some of the highest voter suppression, like most oppressive voter ID laws in the country, has Mm -hmm. some of the lowest voter turnout and has been ravaged by COVID. Mm. So if Espy loses, it will not be Mike Espy's fault. Mm-hmm. And it will not be because people on the ground didn't do the work. Yeah. It will be because the corporate backed centrist machine failed him once again, because the Democrats have never, ever, ever shed a tear or mm-hmm. given a shit about the South since they lost it to the Southern strategy. Like drop. Amen. I, I really feel like I should close the show there. Um, but we're going to cut up that little piece and just run it on a loop on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, <laughs> because 
you are preaching. It's like there's no other profession, I think. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but no other profession I'm close to that like people can consistently lose and not do their jobs well and still keep them. Uh, Look at and, the same amount of money, and and oftentimes get better <laughs> positions. Like if yeah. you just you just you lose on bigger candidates or on bigger campaigns every time, and that's how you get promoted. In what world does that work anyway? Democratic white male politics. I mean, it's great. Like oh. there are tons of people like like myself, like who. This is a different conversation. Like I I applied for every every major Democratic candidate's presidential race. This is after like being an organizer, a regional of several years, managing campaigns across several state state levels and winning them. And only Joe Biden offered me a job. I'm not saying that to Papa Joe Biden. I'm saying that, like that is reflective of the Democratic Party sort of social structure. And, you know, it should be no surprise why we lose a crap ton of elections. Um, I love the fact that you pointed out Mississippi's black population. I think Mississippi has the first or second. It's one of the top two percentage of um, black population in the country. There is, ap- there is no good reason except for incompetence why Democrats don't consistently win elections there, not just compete, um, but win elections. And that is still true across the con- old Confederacy. Right? Black people by and large have not left the old Confederacy, um, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, so on and so forth. Um, overwhelmingly, you know, folks still live there and the fact that we haven't competed, let alone won elections there um, in what, almost 50 years is, uh, a damn shame and speaks to just uh, a social and political infrastructure that honestly is not unlike Trump. Uh, but I think that's a different conversation. Um, I want to close with a few more lighthearted questions for a little rapid fire stuff. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Um, everybody loves plain sweet tea. So raspberry or lemon sweet tea? Lemon. Mm, okay. Cornbread or biscuits? Cornbread. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Or two for two here. Uh, not necessarily talent or longevity of the franchise, but just like sheer grit. John Morant or Tony Allen? Tony Allen. Oh, yeah. I can't really compare that, huh? <laughs> fried chicken or fried fish? Oh. That's a tough one. Oh, this hurts. <laughs> Fred, this hurts my soul. Like, I feel it in my soul. Like, gotta, it hurts to have to choose. Gotta pick a side. Okay, can I ask a clarifying question? I know this yes. is supposed to be rapid fire, but like, what part of the chi- like, what 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 part of the bird are we talking about? Mm, let's go with a boneless, uh, I'm sorry, boneless thigh. I'm going fish. Yeah. Okay. What part of the bird would make you go chicken, if any? Maybe like, maybe like the like a nice a nice drum, you know? Okay. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm just feeling fish lately. No, I'm with it. I'm with it. Stand we're gonna, we're gonna go fried fried fish for now. Okay, I'm with it. Uh, favorite cocktail? Ooh, old fashioned. Old fashioned. I like that. That's my favorite go to as well. Either that or uh, whiskey sour. Yeah. I love a good whiskey. Every once in a while, like. Yeah. I sound like such an old, I'm like the hard bird, you know? Oh, <laughs> At one point in my life, I get down. I'm just like, down, yeah. now, now I'm like, oh, I need some Tums. Hey, you know, Mother Time is undefeated, so it's all good. Um, we will legitimately close with this question. Uh, any aspirations to run for office one day? Uh, yeah, probably. 
Yeah. Probably. You know, I did last year. I do. I didn't know, but the, I don't know if the listeners knew. Yeah. Any yeah. aspirations oh, no, to do I don't it think, again? I don't think we, we, we went an entire conversation <laughs> without talking. And I can't, like, I can't tell you enough because actually just four days ago was the one year anniversary of me getting my ass handed to me in that race. And so like, that was, so it's, it's still, it's very fresh in my mind still, but yeah, I will, I will run again. And I'll yeah. probably run for the same seat that I did last time. Cause my do nothing opponent is termed out. So that's what's up. Yeah. Well, if you need some money, give us a call. We'll raise some funds. For you. <laughs> We've got to so operate much. within this trash ass system. So, you know, um, and Barack Obama got his ass kicked his first congressional race as well. So it's only up from here. He sure did. Yeah. He sure did. Yeah. I can't lose any worse than I did last <laughs> cycle. Trust me. Yeah. I appreciate you. This is great. Man, I appreciate you. I, I love this show so much and you, and I will come back anytime. Thank you for having me. Always, always. Politics as usual. Thanks, y'all.